0: There are 574 tribal nations represented across the United States. They each have their own cultural richness, way of living, and customs. They also have health disparities and trouble with the acquisition of resources. Tribal Health, the podcast, wants to shed light on them and bring solutions available to improve access for tribal and indigenous communities. And now, your hosts, Melody Lewis, Mario Trujillo, and Morgan
1: Haynes. So hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tribal Health. We have our guest here, Edgar Villanueva. I'm going to ask him just to give a quick little introduction and tell us about yourself
2: sure hi everyone i'm edgar i'm an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe of north carolina we are in southeastern north carolina one of the largest tribes on the east coast there i currently live in new york city which is lenape territory and um, i have a background in health in terms of studying public health began my career early on doing a lot of sort of public health campaign and marketing work to encourage uh, folks to um, make good decisions around their health like get va- vaccinated those types of things and then most of my career has been in the space of philanthropy where I started as a funder moving grants to organizations that were working to improve health and communities and I've been in that space for about 20 years and currently serve as the trustee of uh, one of the trustees of the Robert Wood Johnson foundations, which is the largest health foundation in in the country.
1: (laughs) So, yes, I was asking about your community. Tell us more about, you know, some of the cultural strengths you have there.
2: Yeah, I love my people. You know, Lumbee folks are, you know, we're like all Native people. We, We are resilient. We have a lot of folks don't realize when North Carolina was the very first point of colonization on this land. And so, to have any thread of anything indigenous left in that part of the country is is really remarkable, and so our tribe, the Lumbee tribe, has sixty thousand people and is a um, sort of a conglomerate of various tribes who came together, who were who remained after the Trail of Tears, disparate of smaller tribes who formed a larger community and named themselves after the Lumber River, on um, the Lumbee tribe there. So we are alive and well. And, you know, we like like a lot of tribal communities, we have our, our problems, our challenges because of poverty and historical and systemic racism. But I'm really proud of what my my tribe has been able to accomplish in terms of taking care of itself, standing in our self-determination. We are a state-recognized tribe, but we Are not fully federally recognized, and I say that because in 1950 we were recognized, but without benefit. So we don't have access to Indian Health Service, for example. But North Carolina is home to more Native American doctors than any state. So I think there's just there was something about that, like, well, we got to go out and do it ourselves. So uh, we're well represented in health and medicine in the state of North Carolina and that's something I'm really proud of. I was the, the founding executive director of the North Carolina American Indian Health Board. And so that was a, a really cool experience to really be able to bring forward the the talent and expertise that's in my tribe and other tribes across North Carolina to come together and think about improving our health. But if you're ever um, on I-95, going, it, we're right in the middle of from Miami to New York and Robeson County, um, veer off there and get yourself a good collard green sandwich, <laughs> which since we're talking about health, I don't know if it's the healthiest thing, but you know, it's about balance. <laughs> and after you eat that, you know, I, you know, we love our food like a lot of our communities. And we there's a fantastic restaurant called Fuller's, which is Lumbee owned and operated. That is a buffet that showcases probably the best of what we have to offer So yeah, I'm, you know, every July we have a homecoming where everyone comes back home and a big celebration. So it's, it's a great time of the year. And yeah, I love my people. I can go on and on about it. Growing up, I knew I wanted to do something to help people. My mom was actually a nursing assistant. And so she would she worked several jobs but her evening job was to go into the homes of folks like fellow elderly folks in our community to take care of them and often work third shift and when i could she would drag me alone and along with her and i just saw the caretaker in her and that really influenced me to be in uh, a part of the health sector early on when I finished um, my first round of college, I um, kind of stumbled into this, non- I needed a job, found the job in the newspaper. Who's old enough to remember those days where literally you circle and you send in your resume. And so I um, I went and um, got this job as like an admin assistant and it was this national nonprofit that was a contractor for the CDC, the Center for, for Disease Control and Prevention. And it was there that I really got politicized around health because I, you know, I, I knew about poverty and, and certain things uh, coming from the community that I did. But it was there where I really learned sort of about the, the historical and the systemic things that are in place that have really prevented certain people from having access to health services and information. We ran the national AIDS hotline at this organization, which had been around since, you know, of course, the early '80s, and so a lot of that politic around who was worthy, who had information, who had access, how federal dollars were allocated and spent or not spent really impacted me. We ran the national STDs STD hotline, the national immunization hotline, lots of resource centers. Also saying the word hotline dates me because, you know, but yes, young folks, back in the day when you had a question, you called 1-800-FILL-IN-THE-BLANK disease <laughs> pretty much. And I worked at an organization that managed those call centers. And so I you know I, I i learned like wow there are folks who are deeply impacted by some of these issues or diseases or whatever and don't have access and so our work was really important because it was a free resource where people could call and ask questions i also learned that there were certain parts of communities that were distrustful of the healthcare system and You know, when working with the immunization hotline, there were folks who were really afraid and sometimes mothers, new mothers would call or whatever and really needed to be talked through. Is this the safest choice for my baby? And we had, you know, nurses and others on on the lines who could talk folks through that. So that's how I got sort of politicized around health. And I went back to graduate school for public health at UNC Chapel Hill. And right out of grad school, I got recruited to work at a health foundation I didn't know anything about philanthropy. I had heard of like Kaiser Family Foundation because they put out a lot of reports. But at that time I was really at a crossroads because I was being recruited by big health systems. And I was like, wow, they pay well. I need to run a hospital. I need to, you know, that's and I, you know, I was at Mayo Clinic interviewing in different places. But for me, I didn't feel quite connected to the administrative jobs I was being recruited for. Which are heavily focused on budgets and finance and saving money for the healthcare system, and so I took this job at a philanthropy, really like not fully understanding the sector of philanthropy, which is a trillion-dollar industry of uh, charitable, you know, money that don't that individuals and corporations have have donated that foundations then redistribute to nonprofits. And, and increasingly now now more tribes around the country to support different um, areas of programming. And so my first job in philanthropy was like amazing. I had like this $25 million portfolio. I had a lot of power as a 28 year old young native man from Robinson County, Lumbee tribe, to be in the driver's seat to decide who was in and who was out in terms of receiving funding from this private foundation. And I got to in uh, that role here and see all over the state, all kinds of amazing programs that were happening. And I would meet with people, discuss the business plan from diabetes prevention, diabetes prevention programs, the mental health programs, FQAC, like you name it. We were building emergency rooms at hospitals. So I remember going into facilities with a hard hat on. So I got to experience all kinds of really cool things. What I noticed in that space after some time, though, is that where the money was going and where the money was not going. And that organization is celebrating its, I think, 70th anniversary. And I just did an interview with them. And I remember when I went to work there, we didn't have one single grant that was going to a Native organization or to a tribe in North Carolina. And given the influence that we, especially the Lumbee tribe, has on the medical sector there, and You know, we were are largely have been largely invisible as people there, but we are definitely there really um, appalled me that we weren't trying to move money to native communities, given our mission was to improve the health in the poorest communities in North Carolina. So I began to notice even in the sector of philanthropy, the disparities of who got the money, who didn't get the money. And I got really politicized about that. And that has been my work for the past 20 years is to interrupt the flow of capital and to reroute those resources back to native communities back to black communities, because we know in this country that the way wealth has been accumulated historically has been off of our land and off the backs of black and brown people who have provided free labor that has now generated um, wealth and so philanthropy in itself as a sector is a byproduct of a very unfair system. And so my work has been about reclaiming that wealth and getting it back to our people for the last 20 years.
3: That was incredible. I, I, Melody and I are both like nodding our heads like, yes, keep going. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think even in talking about, you know, philanthropy and funding and opportunity, it goes to show how advocacy and representation is so absolutely essential because to your point, I mean, even in philanthropy, right, there's disjointed opportunity. And representation, and there has been systemic issues, and we and we know that. But also, when it comes to like federal funding, so while the intent may be good, not having the appropriate representation can lead to, you know, misaligned, I guess, outcomes. Um, so that I really appreciate that. And Melody's going to take over because she's the one to talk about the book. But I guess for me, I would like to know what the most impactful and meaningful experience from a specific moment was for you because how you ended up there, obviously you were called and meant to be there, but I I'm curious to see, is there one moment where you're like, Oh, this has to change.
2: Well, You know, I, I think there's been so many moments. I I think it's it's sort of the combination of working in the sector. And I remember having a convening of all of our grantees and I just looked out in the audience and it was like, Mostly old white men, no shade to old white men, but, and I'm like, so these are the leaders that we're investing in to change the health of North Carolina in our poorest, you know, communities. So that's where I I really saw a lack of representation. The other catalyst for for me is what I personally experienced as a native person in this sector, because as you were saying, Morgan, like we have not been represented. And when I got into philanthropy. I could count on one hand, like I think I only knew one other Native person, although there were a few others, but we had a network we still do called Native Americans and Philanthropy. And I went to the conference and it was just a tiny group of people who were the the lucky few who happened to like get into this sector and then were expected to kind of keep our heads down, not rock the boat, leave our indigeneity at the door, basically, when we came in uh, to work. And I remember just sort of the feeling of advocating for funding to go to these new, to these new groups. And, and and there was a moment where, you know, and I was very respectful. I knew how to manage up, how to translate, how to code switch all the things in the boardroom, right? I wasn't showing up in my regalia in the boardroom with my fist in the air, Um, but I was really pushing hard to make grants to this new group of, of organizations that were led by native groups, black, black groups, uh, leaders. And there was such a pushback that I got from my board. And in that moment, I was like, you know, I started taking it very personal because I knew I had done my job as a program officer to bring the best work in front of this board to be funded. That was actually having an impact in communities. And I was hearing things like, We just don't we don't know those groups. They're not ready. It's a high risk. We don't know if they have the capacity. Let's just wait and see. And what I realized in that moment was that I was pushing up against the status quo and it was a very, very uncomfortable thing. And the more I pushed, I became a target personally, and I was pushed right on out the door. (laughs) And so I realized, you know, when you are willing to stand up for what's right, you're not going to be popular. And I had to make a decision. Am I in this for the success of my career or am I really in this for community? And that caused a lot of heartache for me personally. And I did, you know, lose a job. You get pushed out of some jobs as a result of it. But I never compromised my views and and what I was there for. And in the long term, that has served me well because I have a very successful career now. But it was, you know, at those few moments of crossroads for me where I had to really kind of be clear about what I believed and what I was going to stand for.
3: I'm super grateful for that perspective. And insight and experience that you shared, because I think we have often forget how much we've accepted status quo. Even, I mean, when you're advocating for change, it's different, but it's not comfortable. It's not easy. And to your point, it doesn't always win you friends, but those are the things that when you're convicted, it just charges you to do better. So I'm appreciative of your tenacity, resilience, and um, pushing forward for that. I know Melody and I talked about the story and the value and the beauty in resilience and how it's just so representative of the Indigenous culture.
1: So let's stay on this topic of resiliency, okay, just for one one minute, because I want to highlight, I've been taking notes over here, I want to highlight some of this several examples you've given, specifically the cultural strengths that we have as indigenous people, as well as some of these resiliency skills. So when you first started talking, you talked about, you know, we're located between here and here and you could stop for the best food, right? So that's a resiliency skill. Um, We have this event, so community events, right? Or that community connection. Um, Those are two things I think are very familiar in all indigenous communities where there's this certain indigenous food that just makes us feel like home, but every tribal community has some type of event. And so I'm always talking to those that are trying to work for tribal communities, go to those events, go there, go experience it, learn and listen and just be present about all the cultural richness that the communities have to offer. Um, I think another uh, experience we face as indigenous communities is the leaving my indigenous indigeneity at the door so you could be amongst this totally different world, right? And that's what we talk about living in two worlds. You also talked about translating and code switching. We are currently teaching a youth program right now as we speak, and we're talking about what it's like living in our indigenous communities and what it's like living in corporate systems and some of these things that you're going to have to do. I always tell our kids, like, we are the most self-aware, innate self-aware community not by choice, but because we're walking into spaces that weren't made for us and there where there's not a lot of representation. And then my last thought is, I think this is what we deal with a lot in, in, in Indigenous communities. I just went to a conference, a workforce development conference that wasn't hosted by tribes, like it was a national organization. And um, I had a conversation with one of the presenters right after because They were talking about BIPOC communities and showing about the workforce needs or the industries. And there was absolutely no data on tribal communities on the slides. Like not even, you know, usually we're listed as quote unquote other, you know. And so I'm like, even if you don't have the accurate numbers, just still put us up there, you know. (laughs) So anyway, all of those points just really resonate with me because I know that's what we're experiencing as, as Indian communities across the nation. And I could relate
2: absolutely. You know, and i I feel really excited about how that's changing. And with, you know, for so long, we've been invisible, but now we're seeing so much representation across industries, including like entertainment and the awesome TV shows we have on like reservation dogs, right? And we're um, seeing more Native Americans uh elected to public office and including you know having secretary holland in the the cabinet and we're seeing our communities being respected as you know having being powerful voting blocks being able to swing a state in a direction and so more and more of those who care about power and politics are understanding that they cannot leave us out and that our voice matters so it's a really beautiful time to be indigenous and i think um i hope that young people today see the opportunities to to be engaged and to, to see themselves and in, across industries where we have so many brilliant um, leaders in a way that maybe we did when I was younger, but I, I didn't see them. I know in entertainment, we didn't have anybody on television, but uh, and maybe that's why I ended up kind of starting off in health, because that's where I saw leadership from our community, but you know, Native folks should know, Native young people should know that these days, like we have folks everywhere. And, and, and so there's so much um, more opportunities for um, an inspiration for, for young folks as they're thinking about where they want to step up and
1: lead. And then I just have one more comment. For those of you, I mean, I don't know if you guys heard me talking about this at the beginning, but I am a total fangirl of Edgar. And if you guys aren't familiar with him, he actually authored a book uh, called Decolonized Wealth which is kind of is just making waves for us of how we see philanthropy, how we see allocation of resources. And um, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check it out, we're actually gonna put the link in the notes so you guys could um, go directly to get a copy. But I currently work with the ACLU uh, National Office. And we I'm just gonna talk really briefly, I always talk about this on every show, but I wanna talk about identity, right? And I being a native person. I mean, we intentionally teach our youth about the power and the strength that comes with knowing your your ancestors and your Indigenous knowledge and how that's going to help you be successful. And the spectrum of when that information is introduced varies, right, for all of the reasons we could go into, which would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> but I didn't get introduced to the real history or understanding the Indigeneity power of, of this knowledge until I was in my thirties. And so the reason why I say that is that your book has given such great insight into understanding the indigenous perspective and how that plays a role in the westernized worlds and systems. And uh, more specifically, one of our donor coordinators for ACLU is obsessed with your book. Like she, she's like trying to implement policies and procedures into her institution right now to talk about and to educate and inform others. So it def- I just felt like I needed to share that with you, that your your book is transforming her perspective and we're both around the same age, you know? And so for her to have the knowledge born and raised on the res in Montana, she was. And so just being introduced to the concepts that are in your book and the experiences that you have had um, definitely helps inform the work that we do. So, I appreciate
2: shape. that. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, one of the colonization has robbed many of us from having, you know, the, the, the knowledge and instructions are in our bodies already, but from from understanding how to tap into that. And you know, I grew up, I didn't grow up on the res, I grew up in the city. My mom moved away when I was really young. And so I've had to do a lot of unlearning and relearning. And also, you know, people of my generation, a lot of us felt like in order to survive, we had to assimilate at some level to to a a dominant way of of looking appearing leading and all of those things and absolutely it was later in life for me where i realized the magic sauce my superpower what i actually had that was going to give me the competitive edge or whatever was what was what i already had inside my body and i just needed to tap into that and unleash that and i didn't want to make that a thing that was like a commodity or like i don't know like i talk to a lot of white people all the time because i work around money and wealth and it's like i don't want to i'm not trying to just give up that wisdom all the time for, for for people but i have found that it's the thing that has set me free and has guided me and i think what's awesome about indigenous worldview is that it's it's like good for everybody it's good for everybody it's a better way so anybody that is listening that feels like they have to suppress that or not bring that forward, you know, that is that is uh, the influence of white supremacy. And we need to liberate ourselves from that and wholly embrace being indigenous, because it is actually the thing that uh, will set us free and will save all of us in this planet.
1: Drop the mic. That is done. We are done. For- <laughs> yes, to all of that. I um will have my last and final question, which is by far my favorite question. Again, another resiliency skill for indigenous communities is language and humor. And so we talk about what is your favorite res slang or any slang in your community or family and use it in a sentence.
2: I love this because I, I could go on and on about. The Lumbies have a such a u- unique way of speaking, um, because of where we're situated, the first point of contact and linguistic studies have shown there's like some some way the, the British the way the British folks have speak has impacted how we talk, which is really, really funny when I learned that because we have such country southern accents. And to think that someone that the British way of speaking influence the way we talk is kind of funny, but it, it's it's true. But what we're all in here is we even sell t-shirts that say, "Who's your people? Who's your people?" And so the moment if I took you to my community and I was introducing you around, the first question someone would say to you was like, "Who's your people?" <laughs> And I love that because, you know, by asking that question, you know, I think it represents this idea that we truly believe we're all related and connected. And so people want to know who's your auntie, who's your grandma, where did you come from? Because they're trying to understand in their mind that connection back to you because we are uh, all related in some way. So... I'll leave it there. And if you if you go by that restaurant I mentioned, I'm sure they're selling Who's Your People t-shirts in there. And if not there, they will be at the Lumbee Homecoming <laughs> because we, we will ask you and we'll even put it on a t-shirt.
1: <laughs> I love it. Who's Your People? I'm going to say that all day now. So I've graduated now to anti-status. This is how I know I'm getting older because I live off reservation here in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I go back home, I don't even know who's who anymore. So mine's like, who's your mom? Who's your dad? You know, like, that's how I ask now. So I'm going to say, who's your people (laughs) from here on out. So um, yeah, that's all we got today. That's all we got for you guys today. So thank you guys for tuning in. And thank you. It's been an
2: honor. Thank you
0: for joining us for this episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For the show notes, resources, and more, please visit podcast.tribalhealth.com. If you want to learn more about how tribal health can be a solution to health disparities, please visit us at www.tribalhealth.com.